Apostles' Creed, week two. We're in our series, our second week of our series through the Apostles' Creed. Um, last week, we started to look at the beginning. Um, we covered, I believe, JP covered, I believe, which is very foundational and very, very huge for us to even drill down on again this morning for a moment, the I believe, because the I believe is a statement in the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed being the oldest of the creeds coming down from the teaching of the, the Apostles of Jesus. The creed is the oldest of teachings, um, and uh, it anchors itself deep within the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus. And here's why that's so very important to you and I this morning, and that you and I be remembered of this week in and week out as we dig through this. Every other world religion, every other system of thought, every other philosophy or thought or, or, or any other type of way would tell you, uh, basically... If you want to know the Creator, if you want to be happy, if you want to have righteousness or right standing before God, um, here's what you have to do. Here are the things that you have to attain. So here's the bar. Good luck and go get it. Good luck living a good moral life or obtaining all of these things that you need to in order to be happy or in, either, or in order to know God. But in the Apostles' Creed, the Apostle Creed anchors itself deep in the gospel, which is the central tenet, the core, the very heartbeat of Christianity, which says you and I could never, ever do. You and I could never, ever reach the bar. You and I could never, ever, ever hope to even get there, no matter how hard we try or how much we promise to God that we'll do better. We could never, ever get there. But God has done it through what Jesus Christ came to do through grace on our behalf. And now the only response left for you and I at the revelation of that to us is to simply say, yes, Lord, I come with nothing to offer. I come with no good works. I come with nothing to bring to the table but empty hands of faith saying, I believe. Yes, I believe that this is what you have done for me, not this is what I have done, not this is what I do, not this is what I promise to do. And so the creed is very foundational in that it anchors itself deep in the gospel because the Christian gospel says God came down in Jesus to do for you what you could never do through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, through his ascension. And now you can be justified or made right with God. And it's our hope, even as we track through this series with you, that you and I would become like pit bulls with lockjaw as we latch onto the gospel, anchoring our hope once again in that very foundational beginning, I believe. I believe. Now, it's important for you and I to know that the Christian view of God is three distinct persons in one God called the Trinity. So we, we here have a Trinitarian view of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They'll get their sermons, the Son and the Spirit. They get their sermons later on down the road. Today, we're going to focus on God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And there's two things I want us to consider about God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The first one is his power. The second one is his care. So we're going to look at his power and his care as we track through the Lord's Prayer. All right, you ready to go? All right, off we go. Number one, we're going to look at his power. Uh, we're looking at Matthew 6, and we're considering the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus starts off this prayer um, in a very intriguing way. He lays down a picture of God the Father Almighty. Um, we could say even throughout the prayer, even in the first statement of our Father who art in heaven, um, it's, both care, it's both powerful and caring. When Jesus says, our Father, let's just consider that for a minute, our Father. Now that can resound a lot of alarms for us in our modern day thinking, and even historically back then, the idea of God as our Father 
is, a, is an alarming one to some of us, is an alarming one to people back then too, because the idea of God for many people in modern culture today, and even way back then historically, was that uh, God was this superlative being, this powerful being, this very uh, monstrative being in some ways, who was powerful, who was transcendent, who knew everything, um, but that he was this God who was just kind of aware and he was lurking and he was waiting for you to mess up so that he could come and light you up in some ways. That he was this God who was just waiting for you, this divine being who's waiting for you to mess up so he could strike you or he could smote you in some ways. So this idea of God the Father can even sound alarms for us as, as, we, as we look at this. And Jesus says, he starts off the prayer, our Father. But the first thing that Jesus does in introducing people to the Christian God is in prayer and in communion, is introduce them to the Christian God who's caring, uh, that he's uh, a God who's loving, that he's a God who's ferociously after his people's good in the world, that he's actually involved, that he is this transcendent being, superlative being, powerful being, but he's also imminently involved, that he's caring, that he's personal, that he's intimate with his creation. Jesus continues the prayer, so he says, our Father, and he says, our Father who art in heaven, which, is, which again, is, it ties into his power. So he's caring and powerful, even in that first phrase that Jesus lays down. Now, it's different, though, because you notice something. Jesus doesn't say, um, our Father who art in the front lawn watering the grass, right? Which is a picture of my dad back in the day. My dad used to stand outside aimlessly with a hose, especially even after it rained for, like, a week straight. He'd still be out in the front lawn, like, trying to look like he's doing something, like being productive. He's just watering the grass, watering the driveway and all types of different things. So the picture, so if this, if Jesus had laid down this picture that uh, our father who's out in the front lawn watering the grass, there would be something lost with the father. It says our father who art in heaven, which again speaks to his, his infinite power, that the father himself is transcendent, that he's powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's everywhere, he's somewhere, even in the universe, even as we speak now, who's ruling and reigning somewhere in this place called heaven right now, but that he knows, and he's involved, and he's ruling, and he's reigning over all of his creation. So what we're dealing with here, as Jesus lays down this prayer, is a God who is wicked powerful, but who is very caring at the same time who's intimately involved with his creation. You keep going. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The name of our God, Jesus says, is to be hallowed or revered, um, not to be taken lightly, not to be taken flippantly in some ways. You think about the, uh, the Old, Old Testament prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Old Testament prophet Isaiah, right? He walks into the temple to do his duty. Something that he had done many, many times before, some, some, similar to like what you and I have done this morning. We've walked into this building like we've done many times for most of us. We've come in. We kind of know what we're about to get into. We know what to expect in some ways, right? We've done, we're coming to do our thing again, right? And this is something that Isaiah probably attempted, uh, came up to the, the temple to do once again. He knew what he was about to do. But this time it's different for Isaiah. Isaiah walks into the temple and he's, he sees, which is a key word there, he sees. And what he sees blows him away. He comes in and he sees and he, he feels the weight, he feels the glory of the presence of God in the temple. And he has, captures a vision, he sees the Lord and the Lord is high and he's lifted up and he's exalted within the temple. The hem of his robe fills the entire joint. 
You've got this thing called a seraphim that's just kind of doing his thing, rolling around, this angelic being thing, rolling around, and yet he's singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And at the same time, this seraphim thing is flying around and he's got his eyes covered because the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God is so much, too much to handle. It's too powerful, too amazing. It's blowing even the seraphim away. And something happens. Isaiah 6 says this. It says, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And I, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's what goes down, right? Everything shakes. Everything is shook to the core, including Isaiah. I, Isaiah has seen, has experienced, has sensed now the glory and the weight and the majesty and the beauty and the power and the awesomeness of God the Creator. And it's amazing. And he's shaken to the core of who he is. Now think about it, right? The size of the thing or person that you encounter that you consider magnificent um, will shake you in some way. For example, um, I remember playing hockey as a kid. Right? I love hockey, so I played hockey as a kid. And you'd, you'd wake up and you'd go play at all these different rinks all in and around Boston, right? So I can remember waking up at like 5 in the morning and, and having to drag my stinky equipment with me out the door and, and I'm, and I'm ho-humming, right, because i got to go play at this rink in South Boston, which is just a pit. It's disgusting, right? It's cold. It's miserable. The lights aren't even working. The ice isn't even clean. It's all chipped up. It's terrible. Or you go to Ch the old Charlestown rink, the MDC rink, and that was just miserable and the people were miserable. Everything was just miserable about the experience, right? So you kind of drag. You, you, this is what you have to do. You know you're supposed to go here, right? And you're dragging your butt. You're kind of ho-humming, doing your thing, right? Then I had the opportunity to go to the old Boston Garden. What do you know about the old Boston Garden? <sighs> Amazing, right? You've got the old Boston Garden, right? And you have the opportunity to play at the old Boston Garden, right? And you've got, you've got this is when people used to be able to smoke cigarettes in the, in, the, in the garden, right? So you've got puffs of smoke all over the place and people coughing and hacking up lungs at the old Boston Garden. <laughs> Right? And you've got rats running around in the place, right? And that was just a thing that was normal, like your cat, like the house cat running around. So you've got rats running around in this thing, right? And you've got people from Revere, right, with big hairdos and stuff like that. And it was just, it was awesome, right? And if you're from Revere, I mean that in a good way, all right? And you've got the banners hanging, the Celtic banners, you've got the Bruins banners, you've got retired numbers. There is an amazingness to the old Boston Garden. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of majesty. There's a sense of beauty that just shakes you when you walk into that place to the core because you're awestruck at where you are. Let me ask you this. Okay? This is what's making me think about this, and I need to ask you this. When was the last time that you walked into a gathering like this and you were shaken to the core as you came to worship the living God? When was the last time that you came and you encountered the holiness and the majesty and the beauty and the bigness and the awesomeness and the power of the living God as you came to worship him? When was the last time that it shook you right down to the soles of your feet, man? Has it happened for you? Friends, listen, if you have come and you've worshipped God and you've said you've worshipped God, but yet in some way, shape, or form, you've never experienced the shaking to the core in which you were transformed or you were set on a journey towards change, then you have not experienced the living God. 
Sometimes we've settled for cheap expressions of what we think worshiping the true living God really is. Isaiah walks in and he comes and he's shaken to the core. And what we're seeing in Isaiah is a mark of experiencing worshiping the true and encounter the true and living God, one of the marks. There's no way you can stay the same. Now, with that said, there's two things that leave me bewildered sometimes, right? As a human, as a pastor. The first one is this, is that as people, I can't understand how we can come into a place to worship the all-powerful, almighty, all-loving, all-holy God and not be shaken when we gather together to worship and for us not to be shaken and for us to feel the weight of his presence and glory deep in the depth of our soul. I can't understand how we can't have it not rock our worlds down to the very core of who we are. Sometimes it strikes me that we continue to come and we're still ho-hum as we walk in and, or we're ho-hum as we open the scriptures to read about this powerful living God. How can this be? But the second thing that bewilders me, and it's more important than the first one, is I'm bewildered at myself. I'm bewildered that I'm that group of people. I'm in that group of people. I'm bewildered at my own life at times and how I continue to be ho-hum in my approach to God, in my approach to the scriptures, in my approach to worshiping God and encountering God and my lack of awe and my lack of urgency and my lack of sense of the weight and the power and the majesty of God in my own life. Here's what I'm getting at. I had the amazing privilege to sit down with a, with a friend who just recently lost uh, his wife to cancer uh, recently. We had breakfast this week, and we were talking through the Lord's Prayer a little bit. And one of the practices that he had with his wife before she passed was getting together with her and sitting with her by her bedside and holding her hand and praying through the Lord's Prayer with her. And he told me every time that they would get to, Hollywood be your name, his wife would just stop and she would begin to say, Hollywood be your name. Holy are you, God. Hallowed be your name. Your name is great. And she would begin to just say this over and over and over again because she was struck at the beauty, even in her cancer, the beauty and the majesty and the greatness and the power and the love of God the Father Almighty, which would cause her to just say, Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, when you've encountered this living God, you will be shaken to the core, and there's nothing that you can do but hollow his name, revere his name, lift up his name, exalt his name. Jesus continues the prayer, and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the kingdom of God is launched, is inaugurated, is started at the coming of Jesus when Jesus came the first time. And it was a stamp saying that all things are being made new. And there is a day coming where the kingdom of God will be brought into its completeness, its perfect state, when Jesus comes again to make all things new. He will come to make every wrong right once and for all. Everything that's broken, that we experience as brokenness now, will be made whole once and for all. Isaiah, our boy Isaiah, the prophet says later on in chapter 65, he says, hey, there's a day coming where the lion and the lamb, they're going to graze together. They're actually going to go like have a picnic and watch the Red Sox game in the afternoon. 
Like that's a pretty, like Tom and Jerry are actually gonna get along for once, right? There's a day coming where they're gonna graze together and there's gonna be peace. There's the day coming where death will be told, hey, listen, death, your gig is up. You no longer carry the headline anymore. But the headline reads now that all things have been made new once and for all. The old story is not to be remembered anymore. All sickness and all pain, all tears, all sorrow, all injustice will be wiped away once and for all. Now, you and I can continue to do social justice and acts of mercy and continue to do as much good in the name of Jesus in this area as we, humanly as we, can, as we can humanly possible within our human means. And we should. We should continue to do that as much as we possibly can because we get to show forth a picture of what the kingdom of God is like as we go and we love our neighbor and do good works in the name of Jesus throughout the Merrimack Valley. But there's a stark reality, and it's this. You and I don't have any power to wipe away human tears once and for all. You and I don't have the ability to take away sickness no matter how much good we do. We don't have the ability to save a life, to take death away at all. We don't have the power to do it. But how infinitely powerful is our Father who art in heaven that this is what his kingdom is like and this is the kingdom that's being ushered into us, that will come to us at some point. His kingdom is powerful, powerful enough to take away death and sin and do away with evil once and for all. This is the kingdom that is to come. And St. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, creation, all of creation is groaning and it's longing for that day to come, eagerly awaiting, anxious for that day to come when the fullness of God comes to make everything right once and for all. This is the power that Jesus gives us, shows us, the power of God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But secondly, let's look at his care as we track through the rest of the Lord's Prayer. We catch some insight into this care when he says, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus says that your prayer to this powerful God is a God who also cares, who will give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. All right, now some of you don't like hearing that, and I don't like hearing that. Um, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Um, one of the most unloving things that I could ever do to any one of my three kids, Dylan, five and a half, Lucas, three and a half, uh, Olivia, one and a half, one of the most unloving things or most selfish things that I could ever do to any one of my kids is to tell them yes all the time. You track with me, parents? The, one of the worst things that I could ever do for my kids is just always say yes to every request of theirs. Right? So my son Dylan, hey, Papa, I want to go play Legos. Uh, hey, that's a good thing, buddy. Can I go play Legos in the middle of 114 over by the, the, the intersection of Merrimack there? Can I, you mind if I go do that? Well, it's not, pal, right? Now, I'm going to say no, and, and I'm going to say no to my kids, and I'm willing to put up with the pouting. I'm willing to put up with the grunting. I'm willing to put up with the crying. I'm willing to put up with the fits. I'm willing to put up with the kid rolling around on the supermarket floor like he's a fish out of water. No problem with that. Go ahead and do it all you want. You're still not getting, a, you're not getting a yes out of me. Have at it, buddy. Right? I can put up with the grunting. I can put up with the feeling like you've been attacked by a grizzly bear by the way you respond to, to my no. Because I'm willing to put up with that because I love you. And I'm for you, buddy. And I care about you. And I'm for your holiness and your happiness and your health in the long term. So I'm willing to say no to you. I'm willing to deny you the things that you need to be denied of because I love you, because I know what's best for you. Give us this day our daily bread is asking for what we need. 
And then being able to trust that God the Father knows what's best for us. And being able to trust that God loves us and being able to trust that we're his children, being able to trust that he actually cares for us, no matter where you got your education from or what field of work you work in, no matter how smart you are, we have to trust that God's smarter than us and knows what's best for us and that he cares for us in every single decision that he makes. Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, many people use the word uh, debts or trespasses or just plain old sins. And what it gets at here is the reality that all of our sin is a direct rebellion against God, first and foremost, no matter what, what the sin is. We, it's direct, direct, direct sin against God the Father, the Creator. It's sin against Him. But the reality of our sin is that it has ramifications on our horizontal relationships, doesn't it? Right? Husbands, you might know this with your wives. Your sin against God has direct ramifications in your relationship with your wife or your relationship with your children or relationship with your coworkers or relationship with your friends. There's always horizontal ramifications. But here's how we see the intimacy and the care of God the Father towards us, and it's this. He brings, God does, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for messy people, he brings the gospel straight into our rebellion and mess. See, here's the wild thing, right? We know that God loves us even that way while we were still sinners, Paul says. Christ died for us. So the reality of the gospel is this, is that the gospel doesn't say, hey, God the Father is willing to come in and care for you and love you and reconcile himself to you when you go clean yourself up. So here's what you got to do. You've got you to say, you've got to chant this 10 times. You've got to memorize this 10 times. You've got to give this amount of money. You've got to clean your life up. You've got to tuck your shirt in. You've got to do your hair a certain way. You've got to make a certain amount of money. You've got to get an education. All these different things. God brings the gospel straight into our rebellion and our mess while we're still a mess, while we're still jacked up people. He brings it straight into us. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act, which goes against some of our modern-day parenting. I'm one of these people who falls into this pattern sometimes of telling my kids, clean yourself up and get your act together and blah, 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 and barking commands at the kid without pronouncing my love over him at times or her. In Christ, God begins to heal you. God begins to reconcile you and redeem you. And in Christ, we're reconciled to the Father. But Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 6 that this, there's a ministry of reconciliation now that's available for us horizontally, essentially. That we have this ability now to reconcile because we have this great reconciliation with our creator. We now, because of Jesus, can reconcile with one another. Which means that brokenness and chaos and fractured relationships doesn't have to have the final say here. It might require a little work. It might require, require a little blood, sweat, and tears to work that thing out. But reconciliation is absolutely made possible because Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father. And so sin and brokenness and shame and fractured trust does not have to have the final say in our relationship. That's the care of God the Father to us, that he brings it straight into our mess, and then he works it out into our mess horizontally as well. Last one, Jesus says this, and lead us not into temptation. Let me explain how this shows, or let Jesus explain this, how this shows the care of the Father here, right? Um, let me come down here and hang out with you for a minute. God knows, right? So here's the truth. I don't know if you realize this, but you and I walked into this building a little while ago, 
and we brought truckloads of sin into this building. Right? Some of us have brought real heinous stuff in. Some of us brought real goofy. Some of you guys sin in goofy ways, like weird ways that I can't understand, or I sin in goofy ways, and you can't. You probably look at me like, what? I can't believe you sin that way. That's kind of weird. You're a weird guy. We sin in weird ways. We sin in heinous ways. Some of us sin in ways that we know the good we ought to do, but we just don't do it. Right? So we've brought truckloads of sin into this place. And here's the reality is that God the Father, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven, he knows every single one of your bent struggles, situations, stresses, temptations. He knows all of your frustrations. He knows all of your blind spots. He knows every single sin about you, even as you sit here right now. He knows everything about us, right? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 13, he says um, that God's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear, right? So he essentially provides a way out of the, the train wreck that's about to happen, right? And oftentimes we start to ask the question when we do sin or we do fall into some sort of mess, we start to kind of question God. We, hey, why did you let me struggle like this? Like, why did you let me fall here? Why did you let this happen again? Why did you let this kind of unfold this way? We start kind of blaming and questioning God sometimes. I'm, I'm kind of a whiny baby who does that sometimes in my relationship with God. I blame it on him. And in reality, it's more along the lines of, um, why didn't I take the escape route that God provided, you know, 50, 50 miles before, there was an escape route that was provided. You ever heard the joke? There's a joke that goes, and you probably heard this, right? There's a guy, and there's a flood coming, and uh, he starts praying, and he says, and all his friends are telling him, you got to get out of town. you got to get out of town. And he says, don't worry. The Lord, my God, will rescue me. And his buddy's like, all right, pal. Get, yeah, keep, keep smoking what you smoke. Whatever, man. And so it starts to rain. It starts to pour, and there's a knock at the door, and it's the rescue team. Hey, hey, come on, come on. Come with us. We'll get you out of town. He says, no, 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 the Lord my God will rescue me. <clears throat> All right, pal, whatever. Another day goes by, and now the water is kind of flooding into his home, so he's got to go up on the roof, and there's a boat that comes by, a rescue boat. And they're like, hey, guy, come with us, come on, come on, come on, we'll get you out of here. No, 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 the Lord my God will, will rescue me from this. All right, pal, whatever. And then the, finally, he's up on the roof, the water's up to his ankles, and he's, he's at his rooftop, nowhere else to go, and there's a helicopter that comes with a ladder hanging down. Pal! Grab a hold of the ladder. Come on, let's go. We'll get you out of here to safety. No, no, no. I trust the Lord my God. He will rescue me. He will deliver me. And a day later, the guy dies. And he's standing before God. God, how could you allow this to happen to me? Why would you ever allow me to? I, I, call, I prayed to you. I, I trusted that you would deliver me. It's like God, God's response to him was essentially, what's wrong with you? I sent you a rescue crew. I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. And you didn't even refuse to it. So what's wrong with you is the question. And the reality is this is oftentimes we miss the escape route that God provides for us when we are tempted, right? So for me, personally, as I've thought this out over the last couple of weeks, one of the graces, the means of grace to me in my life has been friendships, spiritual friendships, brothers and sisters in, in Christ and just people in my life who care about me, that I can trust my soul to, that I can go to before I allow the train wreck to happen and ruin my marriage or ruin my relationship with my kids or ruin my ministry. So, for example, many of you have known that I've struggled with, uh, struggled with addiction and 12 years clean from heroin addiction. What happens when stress comes on my life and this amount, this immense, uh, enormous amount of pressure that just sometimes happens and things don't go your way? And you're tempted to, I'm tempted to want to get higher. You have these thoughts, this little birdie kind of comes in, and sometimes you can kind of just do this and flick it off your shoulder. Other times it feels like a pterodactyl's landed on your shoulders. 
For me, one of the means of grace and the ways of escape for me has been be, for me to be able to call up some of my friends and, and out myself and tell on myself and say, hey, I'm tempted. Hey, I'm struggling right now. Hey, I can't do this right now on my own. Hey, I'm frustrated. Hey, I feel my anger boiling up right now. I'm ready to punch holes in the wall. Right? Help me. Help me walk through this. Help me to remember the gospel. Help me to remember who I am. Help me to discern where I'm believing lies right now that have got me to this place right now and help me to get back on track. One of the means of grace, one of the ways to escape temptation for me has been to tell on myself and to utilize the means of grace through friendships for them to pray for me, for them to walk with me. As David Midwood, my mentor, used to tell me, man, I give you a hunting license to come after my heart. And I've given a lot of those hunting licenses out, hunting licenses out to people to come after my heart to make sure that I don't create a train wreck in my life. God has given us a means of grace in himself and the truth of his love in our lives and we have the means of these relationships through primarily the avenue of the church which by the way when we get to the communion of saints and the apostles creed it's going to be beautiful and like jp and used last week it might be like in you know in creating symmetry for us some of us have the mirror muscles right remember that from last week the communion of saints is going to feel like a leg day for some of us right ah oh, the church ah oh. sometimes <laughs> then he ends the prayer on god's power again but deliver us from evil, that God himself will help make you a person who can learn to obey when the test or temptation comes. Because you expect it, but you're dependent on his power to deliver you from the evil one and that he doesn't abandon us. Let me close with this thought. Isaiah, our boy, the prophet, he had seen and he had countered the living God, the true and living God and his power and his, his, his almightiness and his awesomeness, but he was left with a reality and the reality was this, that he was a man who was unclean. He was a man with unclean lips. Un he was sinful. He was stained before God, and it was ever present before him. But he was not left in, in, in despair. And see, our sin, when we come close to the living God, our sin can, 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 can reduce us to a pile of rubble because we see the, the, the stain of our sin. We see the weight of our sin. And it can destroy us, our sins, sometimes. And some of us might have come into this room today, and you've tracked with, 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 with God a little bit, or you've wondered about God, but you've struggled to know if God cares for you, if God loves you, because you know your sin, because you, you feel the guilt and the shame over your, your constant falling back into sin. And you wonder, how could God ever love me? How could God ever care for me? And you feel like a pile of rubble. You feel destroyed. But you can't understand how a God who's so holy and who's so big and who's so majestic and beautiful, how a God like that could ever love someone like you. Are you there? Have you been there before? Do you know someone who's been there? Isaiah was shaken to the core, but he was also given a pardon. And he was cleansed in the temple that day. If you experience the power of this superlative being and you are shaken to the core, it can destroy you. Or you can look to Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ, God's son on the cross, went there on behalf of you and I, and he was literally destroyed on the cross for our sin in exchange, giving us right standing with God and giving us love and reconciliation to the Father to know that we can be his child and in relationship with him and know that we have a God who cares and has provided a pardon. And it says in the gospel accounts that on that day when Jesus died on the cross that the earth shook. There was a shaking of the earth. And in the temple there was this curtain and it was torn in two and 
when the curtain was torn into two, signifying that the doors were blown open now to know God, to know the Creator, to be in relationship with Him now through the reconciling work of Jesus on our behalf. That now there's no condemnation when we sense our sin, even as we come to worship God Almighty and His power and His majesty, we can know that there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus because Jesus has been destroyed on our behalf. And now we can know the Father and worship Him. And we can have right relationship with Him. And here's the beauty of it all. Even as we sense our sin, the closer you get to God sometimes, the more unholy you feel but you trust and you remember what Jesus has done for you to make you a child of God, the beauty and the truth of this is that you are now more loved than you could ever dream of or ever make up in Christ, no matter how sinful or how imperfect you are still, even to this day, you are still more loved. And here's what I'll leave you with. God gives Isaiah a command at the end. And he doesn't tell him to go and earn his pardon. He doesn't tell him to go and maintain his pardon. He doesn't tell him to go and prove to me that you've been loved, that you, you understand this love. He says, behold. He tells Isaiah to behold. And here's what he's getting at. He says, look to me. Look. Gaze. Understand. Grasp a hold of. Behold. And here's where I want you and I to be as we walk this thing out from this place, as we're sent as the people of God from this place. And it's this that you and I would behold the very fact that you and I are loved by God the Father, that his care for us is never-ending, and that he is powerful and he holds everything, all of his creation, in his hand, and that you and I would behold and we would be transformed. Robert Murray McShane said this, and I'll close with this. I swear, I promise, I'll close with this. Robert Murray McShane said this great Scottish preacher. He said, every time that you look and see one sin of yours, I want you to look and I want you to look at Jesus 10 times and look at what he did for you and look at the redemption that he provided for you and look at the love that God the Father has for you and see if that won't transform you. And that's my prayer, that you and I would continue every time we recognize our sin as we go, that we'd be able to look to Jesus and behold Jesus all the more and gaze at him and be transformed by that. Amen?